Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, Bill Cannon. I'm a retired 27-year veteran of the NYPD. I retired out of Manhattan North Homicide Squad. I did nearly 27 years. And with me tonight is my co-host, retired NYPD detective, straight out of Brooklyn, Phil Grimaldi. How you doing tonight, Phil? Pretty good, Bill. How about you? I'm doing good. I'm hoping that this storm isn't... Uh, we're supposed to get a hurricane up here in Westchester, but uh, I'm hoping it misses me this time, you know? Yeah, it's been going pretty good over here. If, if the power should go out, I'll try and get you on my phone. Don't, don't even it's- say that. Don't even, don't even jinx it like that, you know? So <laughs> The power tends to go out around here, but obviously oh you too. If something goes out, you go on on your phone. and uh, That's right. We'll have, to, we'll, we'll have to go to a contingency plan. We know how to do exactly. that. Uh, so tonight, folks, I just want to go over. This is Police Off the Cuff. Please, if you're not a subscriber, go on to our YouTube, hit the subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, uh, ring that bell. We also have a Patreon, uh, uh, www.patreon.com, Police Off the Cuff. And we now have a new membership thing on our YouTube, and we have like four tiers, and you can become a Police Off the Cuff member. But um, we got some real exciting shows coming up in September on um Night tomorrow night actually, and Phil's going to be on again tomorrow night on a, on a police off the cuff uh, show because Mark DeMeo is doing comedy in another state. He's doing some police convention and he's uh, doing a stand up comedy show. So uh, Phil's going to cover from, and we're doing a show with Mike Simpson, who is a retired Green Beret, uh, Airborne Ranger, Special Forces, a medical doctor, and the author of a book. So that should be pretty interesting. Sounds on like nine- GI Joe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we got they're coming out of the woodwork now. You know, people want God to be on the show. They want to God be on the show. On 9-7, we have retired firefighter John Sorrentino. We're going to do a special 9-11 20-year anniversary memorial show, and he's got a real somber um, sort of report. He lost half his firehouse during 9-11. We, um, those, these um, shows for 9-11 are tough to do. They're very emotional. Phil and I both were first responders. We both uh, have, you know, some medical conditions to, in regards to 9-11. But we think it's uh, important that we uh, never forget and we we do these uh, commemorative shows. You know, Bill, nine- John, John was, I don't mean to interrupt you, but John was also uh, a housing cop in the early 80s and rolled over to the fire department. I met him when he was uh, a police officer. And we became friends over the years. And uh, yeah, like you said, eight guys from his firehouse perished on 9-11. And John kind of became uh, a spokesman for the firehouse. Uh, he also works with several charities. And uh, he's going to be a great guest. Trust me. I did some other stuff with him previously. And uh, he's a real good guy with a lot of heart. I'm looking forward to that. And on 9-9, nine, um, we have Bob Martin, the author of uh, 9-11 Remembered 20 Years Later. And he's been on once before. The show was a, a real tear jerker, and it was really tough to keep it together as we uh, visited some of the heroes from that day and some of the people that perished from that day. So that's that's going to be on 9-9. On 9-15, oh, my God, Wednesday 9-15, Sammy the Bull Gravano is going to be on. I mean, that's going to be a tremendous show. I'm so looking forward to that. And the Co-hosting with me, more than co-hosting, is going to be Phil Grimaldi and also the great Tommy Dades, who happens to be an organized crime expert. So all three of us are going to be uh, on with Sammy the Bull Gravano. That should be a really interesting uh, 
Interesting show. On 921, I have Mordecai Zazansky, who's a retired NYPD first grader who's a terrorism expert. He's over in Israel. He's a uh, improvised, improvised explosion expert, and he is a, a, a counterterrorism teacher. That should be really interesting, too, considering what's going on now in Afghanistan. And on 926, the great Jimmy Calandra is coming on from uh, the Beth Street crew. And he has Beth his own podcast. I'm sorry, Beth Avenue. You can tell I'm a Manhattan guy. Uh, <laughs> and he's he's going to be on. And uh, it, that should be an exciting show. Tonight, we're going to talk about the um, the Beth Avenue crew and specific, specifically the book, Mob Over Miami. And during the 90s, uh, just to give you a little historical perspective, I came on a job in 85. I got promoted to sergeant at the end of uh, 1989. And so I was a sergeant on patrol in the 90s. And I worked up in the 2-4 on the Upper West Side. And there was a lot of drug gangs back then. I remember even the 2-4 in the 90s, the early 90s, were getting, was getting 20 or more homicides a year, which is unheard of now for an Upper West Side precinct like that that was lower down. So there was a lot of organized drug crews, mostly young kids, but they were all killing each other. It was during the uh, whole crack epidemic. So if I compare that to Phil, uh, Phil Grimaldi, where he worked in Brooklyn and this, the um, Bath Avenue crew, it's also organized crime, but of a different nature than what I was dealing with. It was, uh, you know, mafia organized crime, Italian organized crime, and crews that were on the fringe of the, of the mafia, but yet did work for them. And that I didn't experience that in Manhattan but Phil and Tommy Dades experienced a great deal of that in Brooklyn. Phil, you want to elaborate on that, please? Sure. Uh, basically, Brooklyn, the way uh, things were going in the 80s and 90s, I mean, you had the crack epidemic. There was all kinds of uh, narcotics-related crime throughout the whole borough of Brooklyn. But specifically in the areas of Bensonhurst, Dyker Heights, Bay Ridge, Gravesend, and some other areas of Brooklyn, there wasn't a real lot of that going on. However, organized crime, uh, uh, you know, the traditional organized crime, which is the mafia, La Cosa Nostra, it was really accelerating at that time. They were getting into drug dealing, bank burglaries, joker poker machines, extortion, all different types of stuff. And they kind of were getting a little bit of a play in the early 80s, I guess, because there was much of this crack epidemic that was taking over uh, the NYPD and local law enforcement's uh, resources. So uh, there's a, a story, the, the book, The Mob Over Miami, which uh, we're going to talk about. It was a culmination of several investigations that eventually developed uh, informants, which led them to other investigations. And there was, uh, there was a guy by the name of Anthony Spiro that wound up being uh, the acting boss uh, of the Bath Avenue crew uh, and he was actually targeted at one point towards the end of the uh, the whole uh, culmination of investigation. So, um, I mean, he was around the likes of Gregory Scarpa, Anthony Gaspipe Queso, uh, Tommy Patera, also known as Tommy Karate, who was out actually a, uh, uh, a considered a, a serial killer. He was doing a lot of uh, hits for the mob and uh, he would cut the bodies up and stuff like that. So uh, leading into uh, the shows that you talked about uh, with uh, Sammy the Bull and Jimmy Calandria, Jimmy Calandria was actually part of 
the Bath Avenue crew. And uh, as you know, uh, yeah, there's a picture of the Bath Avenue crew. I, I believe uh, the, the third from the left part of the screen is Paulie G, who was uh, one of the guys. I think he was – They uh, th there were seven guys in the Bath Avenue, Bath Avenue crew in particular that had uh, tattoos on their ankles, one, two, three, four, five, six, and seven. And that's uh, Paulie G, number three. I think he was the number one on the uh, on the list. Uh, so these guys were, uh, these guys were hanging around. Yeah, you know, you know Philly, Philly, let me just, Philly, let me just stop you for a second. You know, yeah. I would always, tell, I would always tell people like never identify yourself with something that's going to get in your way at another time. And I used to say that to my anti-crime cops, if someone wore a football jersey to work, I would practically want to slap the guy. I'd be like, dude, you're out there in plain clothes to blend in. Now you wear a football jersey like a jackass. Now on the street, don't you think the the perps are gonna know that, that that's the cop number ten jet jersey? You ever wear a, a jersey again? Don't don't work at that crime anymore. You know, I used, yeah, to, that yeah. used to piss me off. Well, <laughs> the minute they spot you, then they could be telling their buddies he's wearing a number ten tonight. Right, you know? right, exactly. You know, yeah, you got to yeah. be stealth like the perps. Be as stealthy as they are. Wear yeah, dark clothing, yeah. right? <laughs> right, exactly. And, uh, you know, to tell you the truth, though, there was different areas of Brooklyn where no matter what you wore, you drove down the street, they knew you were the Popo, you know. They were, right, of course. Five O's on the block, you know, they would be yelling that out. But uh, but you're right, in, in, in Manhattan where it's more crowded and you want to blend in, you don't want to wear something that's discernible that you can uh, you know, could be easily tagged with. So, yeah, that's a good point, Bill. Good point. <laughs> that's a true anti-crime sergeant right there. Well, yeah, I mean, because I, I believed – in being stealthy and blending in and being able to move about without being made, you know, and wearing yeah. a football jersey, you're just advertising. I'm an idiot and you can make me, you know, because yeah. I'm, I'm Did stupid. you guys do a lot of, uh, of foot interaction? In other words, you'd go out. And yeah. We, we did a lot of surveillance yeah. and, you yeah. know, we would set up on robbers right. and actually watch the robbery go down and they'd sure. run right to us, you yeah. know, and that was a, that was a beautiful thing, but you could do that when you were dressed properly. Yeah, if you wear a yeah. stupid football. The other thing was the anti-crime uniform. Remember those green army coats? Yeah, that was like <laughs> the green army coat and the New York Yankee hat. That was the yeah. anti-crime uniform. That was the uniform in Brooklyn Sat. Like in the seven one, all the anti-crime guys had the army coat. And it was funny because the pocket that was here, the radio fit perfectly into it. So that's that's <laughs> what I think a lot and it had a lot of pockets for handcuffs and mace and extra bullets and stuff. So yeah, it was a it was a good piece of equipment to work anti-crime for sure. But uh yeah, I actually did uh when I was in Intel, I did some uh counter surveillance. Uh, we, we, we was told to dress up like tourists. We did counter surveillance around the Christmas tree lighting and, uh, different events that were going on in the city. It was after nine 11. So, uh, yeah, so we, you know, we would, uh, walk around with like a bag from one of the local stores and a camera around our neck and try to look like tourists. You know? I, I used to love working midtown cause you could blend right in, in times square, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. That, that was, was that was like, a, that was like a school for crime. Criminals from all over the city came to times square Right. Apply their trade, you know. And the only people that would give you a second look would be the bad guys, you know, if they if they were really sharp enough and they were looking at, you know, maybe give you a second look. But uh yeah, I used, to, I used to I used to love I said it to Joe Pistone, like, you know, sometimes the criminals would say, Hi officer, and yeah. you have to train yourself right. not exactly. to react to that, right? It, it's Hi, funny officer. You say that. I, I was I, we used to uh 
We used to do a burglary surveillance on midnights. And when I worked in the 7 I was an anti-crime. They were having a lot of burglaries. And the boss asked us to, uh, you know, to address the burglary. So we were working 10 at night to 6 in the morning. And uh, I had uh, – uh, my uncle was a sanitation man. And I borrowed his uniform. And we went to the sanitation garage and borrowed a – they had the small sanitation vehicle. It had like a little broom on it and a, and a thing. And I was – sweeping the crosswalks, you know, on the midnight. <laughs> sure yeah. enough, just what you said, some guy woke up, he's like, how you doing, officer? You know. <laughs> but hey, Phil, was- look, look, look who's in the chat. <laughs> Here he is. Hey, but looking forward to being, there he is. All right. That's going to be a good one. It's, You're it's, right. It's going to be a great one. We might as well start talking about the, uh, the, the Beth Avenue crew right now so we could just yeah. cover a little bit of that and yeah. warm, warm yeah. it up for the uh, 26th. Yeah. Well, uh, going back to Spiro, I did a little research on him on the internet. Now, sometimes the, the research on the internet isn't always so exact, but according to uh, a wise guy by the name of Joe Messina, who was also a boss, he claimed that Galanti, uh, uh, Carmine Galanti, made Anthony Spiro back in June of 77. So he had been around for quite a while. By the time the 90s came around, he was acting boss. I mentioned the people that he was around. And his big thing was fireworks, allegedly. Uh, he, he would have warehouses full of uh, fireworks and he would you know sell a lot of fireworks. He would put on a big fireworks display every year on 4th of July and have a big barbecue and feed the whole neighborhood, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And he also had a lot of gambling clubs and uh, joker poker machines. He, he was into uh, extortion and he was well-respected in the neighborhood, you know? So uh, when guys like Jimmy, Paulie, uh, Fabrizio, uh, Tommy Reynolds, Joey Calco, Anthony Gonzalez, Mike and many, those are the guys that were considered the Bath Avenue crew. They were around a guy like this, and it was kind of unusual for guys who weren't made to be so exposed to a guy like Anthony Spiro, but they were doing they were doing a lot of things for him, and they actually killed for him on different occasions. So um uh there there was uh there was the one occasion where um uh, a guy by the name of uh, Tuzio, Louis Tuzio, had uh, been involved in a uh, a murder, and uh, it was actually the murder of uh, Gus Faraci, who actually executed a DEA agent. I think you got a photo of that, Bill. Correct? Yeah. Well, I remember as a young cop seeing this picture, and I was like, "Wow, this guy looks like a savage," because he's obviously roided, right? Yeah. And yeah, he's yeah. he's old, and that was a big thing in the nineties, guys that were in their twenties or thirties, they didn't consider the health consequences of steroids and they just liked to have you to be jacked up on, on, uh, steroids. And he obviously was, was one of them, you know, and, uh, I remember the entire world was looking for this guy. Yeah. When he killed that DEA agent, there was a full court press, uh, to, uh, to get this guy. And it took a little bit of time, but, uh, he was eventually, there it is. That's, uh, that's the photo of him after he was shot and killed. Uh, I believe that photo was taken by uh, a guy from the Brooklyn South Homicide Squad, uh, Billy Jack Needless, needless to say, he was never arrested. <laughs> no, no, uh, he, there was no need for handcuffs at this point. Uh, he got street. He, was, he got street street justice. Well, they they say uh, yeah, they say he got street justice. He died of lead poisoning. All those little cliches. <laughs> uh, but uh, but that actually led to that murder. Uh, the, uh, the guy, um, Tuzio, Louis Tuzio was involved in that murder. And there was another guy present with Sclafani when they got him. And it was a guy by the name of Joseph Sclafani, I believe. And he was the son of a, 
of uh, a guy very close to John Gotti, a made guy that was close to John Gotti. So in the exchange, when they, when they went to kill, um, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, Farachi, there was uh, bullets flying and the guy who was with him, who they didn't target him. They claimed that they didn't target him. They said, we're not here for you, but he turned on them with a gun. They fired a shot at him. He was, he was wounded. And I believe that uh, John Gotti, the, 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 the kid's father, Sclafani's father went to John Gotti and said that he wanted uh, this guy dead, that, that shot his son. So that's how Louis Tuzio met his end. And uh, there, there was a couple other things that uh, the Spiro did in the early nineties. His daughter's apartment was burglarized and there was a guy by the name of Vincent Bickelman, who was targeted as being the uh, the person that did the burglary, and uh, Spiro ordered him killed. And uh, this young guy, Paulie G, supposedly uh, carried out that uh, murder. So you know these guys were around a big time wise guy. They were doing stuff for him. It was kind of unusual that guys, uh, you know, young kids uh, from a neighborhood, and uh, you know, being not made guys, could get so close to, get orders from, and working with. Uh, a boss like that. It was was kind of unusual, but there were so, several other people involved in this. And then there was also uh, Chris Pacciello, who uh, is known as the uh, the Miami uh, Club Kingpin. So yeah, there's a picture of him. He was also uh, banging around with the Bad Day Avenue boys back in the day. There's actually uh, a little... Uh, a little piece of the book on the back. There's a paragraph. I'd like to read it real, real quick. Yeah. Uh, basically, it says the true story of Chris Pacciolo of Staten Island Hood, who became the toast of South Beach until his murderous past caught up with him. Chris Pacciolo had it all: money to burn, GQ, good looks, seductive charm, and a roster of friends that included the celebrities and supermodels such as Madonna, J Lo, Nikki Taylor, and the hottest nightclub in the heart of America's hottest night spots. Miami's trendy South Beach, but he couldn't outrun his bloody past as a mafia-connected petty thief from Staten Island, where he had taken part in a botched robbery that ended in the cold-blooded shooting of a wife and mother left to die in front of a family. So basically, to sum that up in a nutshell, here was a guy who was banging around with uh, the guys from the Bad Day Avenue crew. He uh, brought his act out to uh, Florida after there was a, uh, a botched home invasion where a woman was killed. And uh, he really uh, he got popular very quick in, in the nightlife and the club life. And he was doing really good till all of the pieces of this particular investigation came together, pointing the finger at him as being involved in supplying the information on that home invasion. He was eventually arrested, cooperated, and his life of uh, nightclubbing ended for a few years. But uh, he actually, uh, when he finished his, uh, his sentence, he went back out to uh, Miami and continued on. I think he's still out there uh, playing the uh, the nightclub game. Yeah, I, I think you're right. You know what was amazing uh, about him? And just, you know, I just finished reading the book. I have it actually right here, Mob Over Miami. Uh, yep. And one of the things that he started out as a car thief. And his, yes. last, his last name was actually Ludwigson. And his, right. father, his father was like a world arm wrestling champion. And he had actually, his father had actually gotten a tryout with the Giants. And his father was a big club bouncer. And apparently he got shot a bunch of times in front of this club by some guys that, that he threw out. And then from that point on, his father's life spiraled out of control. He became a burglar and a drug addict and everything. And uh, 
It I, like- I actually knew the father. The father was a bouncer in a club in Bay Ridge called TJ Bentley's. It was very popular with uh, with cops, firemen, and, and gangsters too, I guess. But uh, he was, uh, yeah, he was a bouncer there for quite a number of years. I believe there he got shot. He he he. Got, I don't know if he got some flesh wounds or whatever. Maybe they hit him a few times, but he didn't die from that. And then uh, eventually, yeah, he became. Uh, you know, a, 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 a bullet getting shot is always a flesh wound to everyone else except the person that got shot. They Good take point. it much Good more point. seriously, you know. You know, ah, it's Good just point. a flesh wound. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> I got lit in me now. Of, the best part is not getting shot. That's that's the thing you always want to do, you know. So sure. yeah, yeah. The father, uh, I think he got hooked on painkillers and stuff like that. I'm, I'm not even sure, but uh, and I think drinking and stuff. And uh, I think he passed away uh, years later. But uh, I don't think he had a good relationship with uh, with uh, Chris, from my understanding either. No, so. you know, I just wanted to also speak uh, um, to Chris's character. Chris was like a, a thief, and he would even steal from his own friends. In fact, right. that that uh, home invasion that went bad and resulted in a homicide. He had pointed out that job to them, and apparently there was a safe in the house that was supposed to have, I don't know, $250,000, some large amount of money, and he had heard it from someone else, and that was sort of his MO. He, Someone would say to him, oh, my father's saving my, my sister's wedding. He's got $40,000 in a safe in our house. He, would, he, would, he knew the guy, and he targeted the guy's house and took the safe. It's yeah. like... You know, that's like, I mean, you know, when we hear stuff like that, we're like, that's a criminal. <laughs> it really <laughs> you know? makes your skin crawl. It makes your skin crawl. I mean, they, they say no honor among thieves. I mean, uh, there's that's so unethical to hear information like that and then, you know, uh, plan a burglary or a robbery or whatever it is. And, you know, unfortunately, in that case, uh, there was a woman who uh, who was killed uh, allegedly accidentally or something like that, whatever. I'm sure we'll get into the details when we do have uh, Jimmy on that show, uh, on, on that show on the 26th. Um, but, you know, th- th- this this whole book, Mob Over Miami, was a culmination of a lot of different uh, police agencies working together. And each time that they uh, went forward with a takedown and made arrests, they would develop informants, you know, they would be debriefing people when you're facing 20 years, 25 years and different things like that. Uh, there's a lot of incentives to cooperate. And then it went on to the next investigation, to the next investigation until it led up to uh, this guy, Anthony Spiro. But uh, I was speaking with um, someone today and basically the investigations that were, t- were targeted, what were mentioned in this book had to do with the DEA was basically the lead investigative agency along with the FBI the U.S. Attorney's Office, Jim Walden, uh, Chris Blank, and Greg Andres were the prosecutors. The Brooklyn DA's Office, Brooklyn South Narcotics, the 6A Precinct Patrol RIP and the squad, as well as the Intelligence Division. That's just to give you an idea of some of the people that worked on the case. And the whole case or cases were overseen by Chief William Ali, who succumbed to uh, 9-11-related uh, cancer, and Captain William Plackemeyer, as well as uh, John Cipriani, who was a boss from the DEA. I mean, those were the people that were overseeing the case. That's just a uh, probably I, I left people out. There, there was but, also uh, a guy named Charlie Wells, who was a deputy inspector, who was the head of Staten Island Homicide. Great guy. Great yeah, guy. A, a, real, guy. Uh, a, a real warrior, that guy. Yes. You know, one of the things I wanted to talk about, though, too, is with these big investigations and with organized crime, well, organized crime knows that dirty guy from the Bronx named Rico, you know, and it's, <laughs> he's, not, he's not from the Bronx. It's the, 
racketeering influenced co- corrupt okay. organizations. And that is a conspiracy law that the feds use all the time. In fact, they've probably overused it. But they can put people away for 50 years, 100 years, if they can prove that it was a conspiracy. And that's the thing I think that spelled the doom of the mob as we know it, in uh, at least in New York City, that RICO statue. And then when you're dealing with the DEA and some of these other federal agencies, they have different rules in prosecuting people. And they put people away and they throw away the key. And I think that's what spells cooperation from the participants in these cases. Because when someone says, yeah, okay, 33 years if you plead guilty, take it to trial, you're going to get 50 or 60 or whatever. That entails people starting to cooperate. You you know, that's a great point, Bill. And also, you got to realize, too, that when you're in the federal system, it's not like the state system. Like in New York, they have the good time law where you can get, if you get sentenced to three years, you actually only do two because you get a third off for good behavior if you behave yourself in jail. Whereas in the federal system, you only get one month off a year. So if you get three years, you only get three months off. Now, a lot of these uh, RICO cases, the sentences are 25, 30, 50 years to life, you know, big, big sentences. And when you get 50 years to life, you're doing 40 something years before you're going to see a parole board, you know, so, or even have the opportunity to be released. So you're right. There's, there's definitely incentives to cooperate once the RICO statue, when they, when they connected you to organized crime, the RICO statue, uh, the, the uh, sentences were always doubled or tripled. Um, and the federal prosecutors went after you a lot harder and the judges always sentenced a lot harder because they felt like if the government was targeting you and they could prove that, let's say you're a made guy in organized crime. Now, made guy means a lot, you know, on television, people don't really know what it means. But when you're a made guy in, the, in you know, in the federal court system, it means that there's people working under you. It's a uh, it's it's a, an organization like you described in Rico. So they want to really target those people that are made guys and they want to, uh, you know, they want to uh, give them, hammer them with the hardest possible sentences. A lot of times they'll, uh, they'll uh, confiscate a lot of their funds. They'll, they'll go into their banks and, and safe deposit boxes. They'll, they'll seize properties and stuff like that. So when all of this happens, you're living this high life and then all of a sudden your world comes crumbling down. I mean, it's a great incentive to, uh, to cooperate. And then you have things like, you know, we're going to go over this with, with Jimmy. I mean, he was quite upset by the fact that they, they killed a close friend of his and, uh, you know, and then there was that home invasion with that went awry and somebody was killed. So I don't know if those were the exact things that, that, uh, you know, he cooperated for, but I'm sure he'll discuss it with us when he's on the show. You know, Phil, yeah, Philly, let me just, uh, let me, before we get all into that, because I think that's, uh, well, I think the um, the actual homicide happened in February 18th, 1993. But in 1992, I believe Chris Pacciello picked that, uh, he, he picked out a, a bank in the Staten Island Mall. And he someone had told him or he had noticed that they had the money delivered through like the this uh, delivery box. So there was thousands and thousands of dollars. And they set up, a, you know, a burglary slash robbery where they went there. I believe it was um, Chris Pacciello, uh, Gerald Belfiore, William Galloway, Tommy Reynolds, and Jimmy Calandra was there. And, you know, they had masks on, they had sledgehammers. They took out the windows, they went in there, and they just wheeled out the safe or all the money. 
And I, I heard actually I was listening to one of Jimmy Calandra's um, podcasts, and he said they cleared a half a million dollars in in that in that bank robbery. So yeah. it's like those cases though, that they they come back to haunt you when all of this stuff goes down. All of these cases when someone is going to like say turn states evidence or they're going to cut a deal, they have to do something called al- an allocution. And that's they have to admit to every single crime that they've committed. And if they don't, and the government finds out that they hid something, they can cut the deal right there. They could withdraw the deal. Yeah, yeah, they'll tear up the agreement. I think that the bank job you're talking about, it was inside the Staten Island Mall by one of the exits or entrances. There was a bank right there. And then there were glass doors when you first went into the bank, and there was like a little uh like a a, a hallway. Or, or like a, a little cubby before you actually went into the bank. And that's where the ATM was. And there was a bank drop box in there. And they somehow figured out or noticed, I don't know if they were given the information, that at the end of the day, the, the bank manager would take the money and put it in this, uh, this little lockbox. So what they did was they waited until, uh, I, I think it was a female, was coming out of the bank and going into this little hallway or this little uh, uh you know, whatever you want to call it, where, where the ATM was. And before she could put the key in and open the uh, the little drop box, they broke the windows with the sledgehammers. They grabbed the bag for and they made off with quite a, a substantial amount of cash. I mean, it was, sounds like it was pretty easy too, and and not good security on the part of the, uh, of the bank, but that's the way they had it set up. And uh, the information was- I, 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 guess, I guess banks don't uh, expect- Five guys, two with sledgehammers, <laughs> three with guns to come in on a normal day, you know. But uh, yeah, right, you, you know right. what it was too. It, it's the Staten Island Mall, which is very busy. So this was a ballsy move. It was definitely brazen and ballsy. J- to uh, do that. J- Jimmy Calandra says he's going to tell that story on the twenty. I knew that was coming. I knew we would, we would we would love to hear it, Jimmy. It's a it's a great story. I also I, I was listening to one of your podcasts today, and I heard the story. <laughs> about you buying the car with the $28,000 cash. And then they, your friends saw them put it in a safe. So you guys came back and robbed the safe. <laughs> I thought that was, un- and then they meet the guys that sold them the car in a bar. I was like, you can't make this stuff up. You yeah, know, that, that's pretty, yeah. He'll, he'll, he'll probably have a few stories that'll be uh, entertaining. I'm sure. All these stories are entertaining, you know, Philly, we're going to go to a folks. We're going to go to a quick commercial. And we'll be back in a few minutes. Please don't get washed away. Hope you have a a canoe ready or something to take care of yourself. Are you tired of the same old surroundings looking to relocate? Or are you just in the need of a real estate agent in the Myrtle Beach, South Carolina area? Well, Carol Waters is your girl. Her and her husband, Rob Mahan, who's a retired member of the NYPD and the NYFD, are both million-dollar sales agents. Carol and her husband, Rob, can be reached at 914-261-6681. That's 914-261-6681. Or you can email her at carolwaterselsmb at gmail.com. That's carolwaterselsmb at gmail.com. One of her clients was quoted as saying she always goes the extra mile. Joe Murray, attorney of law. We hoping Joe is feeling good. I know he's a little under the weather, and I uh, hope him, hope that he has a speedy recovery real soon. Have you found yourself in a jam? Are you in need of legal counsel in the New York area? Do you need a victim's advocate? Joe Murray is your man. 
He's not only an experienced trial attorney, he's also a 15-year member of the NYPD. His website is jmurray-law.com. That's jmurray-law.com. His telephone number is 646-838-1702, 646-838-1702, or you can email him at joe at jmurray-law.com. He knows both sides of the fence, and uh, some of the subjects we're talking about tonight, people might need a, a good lawyer. <laughs> Folks, I just ordered this coffee myself, so I put my money where my mouth is. Uh, Police Coffee is an officer-owned business dedicated to crafting the finest coffees and blends. We can provide you with the freshest coffee available. Each batch is roasted fresh by people who know what it means to stay vigilant. And our specialty coffees do not waste one drop when flavor is concerned. Our coffee is some of the best you'll find, but it also helps serve an important cause giving back to our community. 50% of our profits goes towards helping family members of police officers who fell in the line of duty. To order coffee and related products from policecoffee.com, go to the website. There are over seven types of coffee to choose from. 50% of the profits go to officers' families in need. For a 10% discount, use code OTC, off the cuff 10. And that's policecoffee.com. And as I said, I just ordered some. It's fantastic. I like the dark roast the best. Um, if you're looking for supplements, be sure to check out the products from FirstDoNutrition.com. As first responders, there are certain expectations in our performance on the job. We train hard and drill often to be able to perform at our best when duty calls. Whether it's hoofing over 100 pounds of gear or engaging in a spontaneous foot chase, we work out like our life depends on it because it does. Two New York City firemen created this supplement line with hand-picked products that will not pop positive on any drug test for first responders. Solid pre-workout products that will give you a good pump and a short-term strength boost that can help you power through your workout. Supplements that help with fat burning and weight loss and post-workout formulas that support recovery. Go to firstdonutrition.com. Use code OFFTHECUFF to get 10% off your order. Wow, that was a mouthful. I didn't know if I'd get through yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I feel a little rusty. I didn't do a show since last week, so I was trying. <laughs> but, but uh, you know, I just wanted to say something about, you know, we're talking about organized crime, and we're bringing people onto the show that obviously were involved in organized crime, criminal activity. We're not condoning uh, the activities that were conducted by these individuals in the past. And, you know, um, Law enforcement has a tough uh, job trying to investigate organized crime. So the, the need for cooperators is definitely there. And, and Bill and I, you and, when I uh, you and I were talking about it earlier today, how it's just part of the system. And, um, you know, uh, a guy like Jimmy Calandria or um, uh, Sammy DeBoe Gravano uh, being able to, you know, talk about stuff like that. I think it's, it's really important for law enforcement and for, for, you know, the, the general law enforcement community and for people just to hear it's interesting. But for the law enforcement community, it gives us two things. One is we, we know how they think. We find out how they operate, the things they did, and the reasons they do, do things. Like if you're on a surveillance and you know a made guy is on the street and some guy who's not a made guy and he hits him, you know that that guy's marked for death. So all the different things that we're finding out from hearing information from individuals like Jimmy Calandra and Sammy, it's very important for law enforcement. But there's another side of it, too. The other side of it is, and I think I heard Jimmy on one of his podcasts just in the last couple of days talking about 
most of his friends either wound up in jail or dead or whatever. So, you know, maybe there's a message to young guys growing up in, in, uh, in these areas that, you know, don't get involved in organized crime. You hear many stories. It might seem like it's a little funny at times, or it might seem a little crazy, but at the end of the day, it's still criminal activity. And I'm sure when you, when you hear Jimmy talk or you hear Sammy, I don't think they're going to be promoting people to go out and do this kind of stuff. You know, uh, it's just, uh, it's something that I think is, is uh, it's necessary in, in law enforcement. Now the, the deals were made and, and whatever deals they got, that's not up to me. It's not up to you, Bill. It's, it's not up to us. It's up to uh, the U S attorney's office or, or the district attorney's office, where the, whoever made the deal. And the point is, is that us, bringing them on the show and talking about it. It's just getting another perspective from the other side of defense, so to speak, the other side of the train tracks. We're on this side, they're on that side. But that doesn't mean that we can't have a conversation. And that's exactly what we're going to do. We're going to have a conversation. And when, when we talk to um, Joe Pistone, I mean, he gave us tremendous insight into the life, uh, you know, organized crime, the life, and the other side of the, uh, the train tracks. And, you know, he was living it for six years. But again, there's not Joe Pistones out there every day that can do this type of work. That's one in a million. That, you know, he's a, he's a tremendous asset to law enforcement, all the work he did. And you're not going to get things like that so easily. So there is the need to sit down with guys, give them incentive to cooperate, and then work with them. And, and you know, unfortunately, there are times when, uh, you know, uh, they could have committed some, you know, really terrible things and uh, they're getting somewhat of a play on, on their sentencing. But, uh, you know, I believe in redemption and I, I, I know a lot of people do. I think the United States generally believes in redemption and, and you hope that guys like this never get in trouble again. And, uh, you know, from what we've seen, it doesn't seem that way. But, uh, you know, again, we're not condoning the behavior and uh, we just hope to have a good conversation in those coming shows. For sure. Nancy Drew, thank you so much for the 499 Super Chat. She she says, this is one of my favorite parts of your show, your personalized <laughs> individualistic advertisements. You guys are adorable. Thank you so much. This is the first time I told you guys that uh, you know I tried my hand at acting a little bit, and my New York accent hurt me a lot. This is the only show where it helps a little bit. People are like, oh, we love your New York accents. You know, as Philly was saying, too, about I think cops and and uh, and we'll call them bad guys or, or criminals or perpetrators. We have sort of a special relationship because I think we, at a certain level, we respect them and they respect us. I mean, we don't respect what they're doing, but we have, you know, when bad guys get caught, they realize it's over, you know, and they're going to have to resign themselves to. Uh, to, to anything that's going to happen to them in the prosecution. And they understand that the Popo, as we are known, uh, is just doing their job. Tom Cusinelli, thanks for the 499 Super Chat. Very much appreciated. Uh, so they understand we all have a role. And, you know, and, and that's the one thing with the, with, the, with the mob. Steve Colon, thank you so much for the 999 Super Chat. We really appreciate it. Um, you know, then we have a special look. That's why the Italian mafia had rules. And basically, sometimes they were broken. In the case of Ralph Dahls, they actually killed the New York City police officer. That was unheard of. And I think that probably the NYPD came down on them like a ton of bricks. And whoever made that decision or did that was probably looked same thing with Everett Hatcher, who was killed by uh, Gus Faraci. Law enforcement came down on the mob so hard that they were like, get that guy because. They were losing money. 
they couldn't go go on with their business. Yeah, absolutely, Bill. Um, just to back up a little bit and talk about what you just brought up. I mean, you know, uh, sometimes there's a mutual respect. Now, when I, whenever I went into a job, I mean, I could be going into the projects of Coney Island or I could be going into a social club full of wise guys. If I was given respect, I gave it right back. When I had to go in and ask a question or, you, you know, do an inquiry, as long as the person or persons didn't disrespect me, I respected them. And I think that went a long way in my career, especially not, you know, not so much with, with organized crime, but with uh, with, with the projects and, and, you know, the, the hardest drug dealers, they had a little bit of uh, respect for you and they knew you were doing your job and, and you had respect for them, so to speak. I mean, you know, you had to put handcuffs on them. You had to put handcuffs on them. And, and when you got them, you know, they knew it was part of the game. And I think that Joe Pistone, I hate to keep bringing him up, but you know, he, he made a, a great point. He's friends with, uh, I think it's Michael Franzese, who was an organized crime member. Uh, till this day, they got a 20-year friendship. And Michael Franzese turned his life around. He was a made guy in organized crime. And uh, they've been able to carry on a, a friendship all these years. Now, you know, uh, is it is it? Ethical, I mean, it could be construed as maybe not ethical, but he's no longer in law enforcement. And, you know, if these two guys have something in common, their lives crossed at one point. And uh, so if they're friends, you know, what's the harm in that? As long as, you know, I wouldn't be friends with somebody that's involved in criminal activity. You know what I mean? I'm, uh, I would always shy away from that stuff and being retired now, same thing, you know. So uh, I think that there's there's definitely a mutual respect when we get into those areas, whether it's organized crime or it's the local drug dealer on the corner or locking up a guy for beating up his wife. You know, I had to lock up a guy one time that was 6'4", you know, 280. I thought I was going to have to wrestle with the guy. The guy was a gentleman. And and as it turned out, I didn't believe what the wife was alleging. But, uh, you know, so you never know is the point. You know, I think that one of the things in, in May 1999, pretty much the whole Bath Avenue crew was taken down. Um, uh, Jimmy Calandra was indicted, Fabrizio De Francisi, Tommy Reynolds, Joey Calco, Charlie Calco, Joey Delatore, Anthony Gonzo Gonzalez, Joe Bonanti, who was a, ban a banana uh, made guy, I believe, and Anthony Sparrow, who, uh, uh, of course, was the boss. He, so, he was the acting boss at the time. Yes, that's correct. So the, the whole house of cards crumbled. And I think that one of the biggest things that the government um, had over them was, was the homicide from 1993 during the home invasion. And that's where uh, at least three people cooperated. And that's getting bringing us back to Chris Pacciello, who was now the South Beach Miami uh, club king and who had at least two clubs and I think also an Italian restaurant. And he was known as a guy down there who basically walked on water, but his world was about to come apart when he was hearing about what's happening to all his friends in Brooklyn. And in fact, it did come apart at some point. You want to discuss that a little bit, Philly? Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, you know, he went from uh, a street, you know, uh, stealing cars, a thug, so to speak. He went out there, he made good uh, for himself. And then when he got caught up in the whole thing, he, uh, you know, he was arrested. He was charged with all of these different crimes. He cooperated. And, you know, the government gave him a deal. I think he did about four or five years in jail and he's back out there. And, you know, again, 
I don't know if he saw the light and he turned his life around and he went back to, uh, you know, his businesses that he developed when he was out in Miami to begin with. And, you know, he's not involved in criminal activity anymore. You know, I, I hope that's what, what's going on with him because, uh, you know, uh, sooner or later you're going to, you're going to screw up and you're going to wind up back in the, uh, with the bracelets on again, if, if you're not. So, I mean, listen, there, there are examples where people that, that they get a second chance in life and they do good with their life. And maybe that's what's going on with him. I mean, he went from, you know, a thug, a street thug being involved in that, uh, that horrible home invasion that went bad. And then all these other robberies, burglaries, bank jobs, all of that different stuff. And, uh, you know, uh, he got away with, uh, you know, only a few years in jail cause he cooperated and, uh, let's hope he stays on the street and narrow, you know, Phil, uh, Danny F asks, and I don't have the answer to this. I don't know if you know the answer. He says, I ask, have to ask you guys, since you were around during the, his heyday, was John A. Light the most feared man in different parts of New York City? Do you know the answer to that? Okay, my my knowledge of John A. Light is, is that he was he was around John Gotti Jr. for a period of time. And uh, I don't know, you know, he was from out in Queens. I, I never rubbed elbows with the guy. I never saw him. I don't know who he is. Uh I don't know. I don't know too much about him. I would say that, uh, you know, from what I do know, if he was the most feared in guy in New York, I, I think I would know about that. But uh, so I doubt that very highly. Uh, listen, that doesn't mean that he wasn't a tough guy or a bloodthirsty guy or committed, you know, murders and stuff like that. I re really don't know too much about him. But uh, like I said, he was around John Gotti Jr. I think he even testified against him. So uh, I don't know. It, it doesn't sound right to me that he was the most feared guy. I mean, you want to talk about feared guys. You talk about Anthony Gaspipe Queso. You talk about Sammy the Bull. You talk about John Gotti. You could talk about Vinny the Chin. Those were guys that were feared. I mean, even Spiro, Anthony Spiro. I mean, uh uh, you know, uh, somebody uh, disrespected him in the street. Uh, I think it was Paulie G was was killed for uh, having physical contact with him. You know, he pushed him or he rubbed up against him, uh, you know, in an argument. And that's one of the rules of the mafia. You don't do that. And I believe that's why he was killed. He was actually killed by um, two of his friends, Joey Calco and Tommy Reynolds, you know. So, uh, uh, you know, there's rules. And uh, those are the guys that I think uh, I would – another guy, Tommy Tommy Patera. There was a joke on the street that uh, I once heard uh, a guy by the name of Frankie Lino, you know, kidding around when I was a kid on Avenue. Uh, he made a remark to another guy, yeah, we'll get Tommy to cut you up. He literally would kill people and cut them up. He, he was almost like a butcher. So, uh, you know, he disposed of many bodies. Those are people – that you need to be afraid of. I, I I don't know about this guy, John Aylett. I don't know what his resume says, but, uh, you know, I, I you know, Philly with, with, with organized crime though, too, it's, it's all, it's sort of like regional because if, if those guys came up to, uh, Washington Heights in the heyday, uh, you know, no one would have given them any respect because <laughs> the guys on the street were killers too. You know what I mean? So it's like when a thug meets a thug, who's going to, uh, who's going to come out on top, you know? Who's ever crazier? Who's ever the more violent? You know. Well, you know that that's a good point. I mean, what they would do if they were going to try and infiltrate a drug gang from Washington Heights, they wouldn't walk into it as uh, you know, as uh, you know, strangers and just walk into the set and try because then they would be construed as somebody that you know is nobody, some crazy Italian guy from Brooklyn, and they'd blast them, you know. But right. in, in a case like that, what they would do is they would. Uh, 
you know, they would infiltrate, they would, you know, make an introduction some way, somehow find somebody. And that's how they would ingratiate themselves into a situation like that. But yeah, they wouldn't just walk in. I see Jimmy's uh, making a comment yeah, here. About yeah, he, say, he says, uh, Jimmy Calandra, Beth Avenue story. Roy DeMeo, Tommy Karate, uh, guest John Gotti, Sammy, Eddie Lino, these, those guys were feared. So to the person that asked that question, this is your answer from Jimmy Calandra, who sort of lived that life. So he uh, he knows pretty much what he's talking about. You know, a lot of people, though, Jimmy, and if you're listening, come on, everyone has a podcast these days, you know. Uh, I'm known as Bill Gaspipe Cannon. I'm, I'm just kidding. Sergeant <laughs> Cannon. No, but I'm just saying everyone seems to have a nickname, which I find funny, you know. Joe the Nose in Pelotado, you know, all these different names. And I, you know, that's funny. I think the public finds that funny too. You're Sergeant you, Bill, and I'm Detective Phil. I told you that's that. right, Sergeant yeah. Bill and Detective Phil, right? And uh, uh, Steve Cologne says, "Gas Pipe and Tommy Karate take home the best nickname prizes tonight." Yeah, yeah. And who was who was the other guy that um, Greg Scarper? Oh, he he was known. He was known at right, the Grim Reaper, and he was you know he was a feared guy too. You know, it's like all of these people that I you know. I guess you could say the sociopaths that yeah. they're just willing to uh, kill people as part of the business. I would say that you would, you know, a serial killer is two or more, two or more kills with time in between. So many of these guys qualify, even though they're killing people within the life quotation marks. Yeah. Right. Well, Jimmy made a great point. There was a guy he mentioned, Eddie Lino. But see, now, if you look at an Eddie Lino, Eddie Lino was a killer, organized crime, um, but he was not a Tommy Patera, Tommy Karate. Tommy Karate was a serial killer. He was killing people just to kill. I mean, I think I told you before we went on the air, his girlfriend overdosed on drugs. He found a, uh, another girlfriend of hers that uh, gave her the drugs. He killed her. He cut her head, her head off. He had her head in the freezer. And when he would get depressed about missing his girlfriend, he would take the head out of the freezer and shoot it. I mean, that's really deranged. That's a, a real psychopath. And Gas Pipe Queso, same thing. He was... He was a killing machine. Greg Scarpa, same thing. These were homicidal maniacs. These were uh, sociopaths, like you said. I'm trying to think, uh, gas pipe, uh, Tommy Patera. Yeah, Scarpa. Uh, th those those were real killers that were just killing to kill. Whereas, and, and listen, I'm not trying to say Eddie Lino was some nice guy or he was a priest, but he did. He was involved in in the. Uh, in the murder of Big Paul Castellano, which uh, Sammy the Bull just talked about on his podcast in the last couple of weeks. So, uh, you know, but he was like, it was business for him. Some of these guys were killing just to kill. There was a little bit of a difference. They were, you know, they were made guys. They were involved in the mafia. But there was a little bit of a difference when you're killing just to kill or when you're killing because a guy broke a rule or, you know, uh, there was a contract on his life for different reasons, you know. Well, you know, when when I listen to Sammy, who, uh, by the way, I love his podcast. I love the way he tells these stories. But he always goes, and that's Goza Nostra. You know, like there is this code of ethics. And we all know the code was made to be broken because everyone breaks the damn code. But when they have a real, like, what he considers to be a stand-up guy, a guy go, that goes by the rules of Cosa Nostra, he has this admiration for him in his voice. But yet... We as cops or we as civilians look at that and say, come on, you know, that's, you know what I'm saying? 
Yeah, you know, from watching his podcast, I got to tell you, I grew up in the neighborhood. I was, uh, I grew up around Avenue, and there was wise guys around where I grew up, and and my family comes from Coney Island. There's a lot of wise guys in Coney Island and stuff, and you know, the things that he talks about, a lot of times, the things that he says really make sense, and you know, there's rules and sometimes the rules are broken for different reasons, money, this or that. But there were times when, when rules were broken. Like for instance, he talks about in one of his podcasts where a guy made a pass at his wife, a made guy. He went to the guy's house, rang the guy's doorbell. The guy's wife answered, is the, asked for the guy, is he home? No, he's not home. And he had a gun behind his back. Had the guy been home, he was going to blow the guy's brains out. Word got back to the guy. The guy put an inquiry, inquiry in with the made guys. And I'm not sure if Sammy was made at the time. I don't think he was. He may have been, but I forget. But he gets called to a sit down and they ask him, did you go there with a gun and were you going to kill that guy? And he goes, you're damn right I was. The guy was going to, you know, the guy made a pass at my wife. I was going to kill him. So at the end of it, they gave him a pass because what he did was a kill offense in, in organized crime. It was a kill offense. He went to a guy's house, was a made guy, and was threatening him with a gun. He It was a kill offense. But they gave him a pass because the boss that heard the, um, the the inquiry that listened to the story said at the end of it, after the, the, the guy who made the beef left, he said, Sammy, I would have done the same thing if he made a pass at my wife. So my point is this. Yes, there's rules. Yes, they get broken 100%. But sometimes, and that's why I like Sammy's podcast, there's some of the stories that make a lot of sense to me. In a situation like that, it took balls to go into the to the meeting and to the sit down and to, to say, yeah, I, I was, you know, he could have said, no, I didn't have no gun. What are you talking about to try and play it off? No, but he admitted it. And I think the boss who was hearing the story liked the fact that he told the truth and liked the fact that he was going to stand up for his wife and be a man and have, you know, show respect. Nobody's going to talk to my wife or make a pass at my wife, especially a guy that knows me. And I, that, that was the situation. The guy knew him and the guy made a pass at his wife. So, uh, you know, listen, it was a killing offense and he got away with it. And there's a lot of other stories that he tells, Bill, you know, he, he's got a pretty good way of explaining the stories. And to me, I could be wrong. I don't know. I wasn't there. I don't know if none of these stories are true, but a lot of them sound very logical and they make sense to me from, you know, the mindset of people in the underworld, people in organized crime, people in La Cosa Nostra. I know I came from the neighborhood. I know a little bit about it. So a lot of it makes sense. Philly, just to get back to the mob over Miami. Now we all know, we know we read the book, but, uh, Chris Pacciello, who had all of these Hollywood types, Madonna, uh, uh, supermodels, they actually put up close to $15 million in property and cash to get, hold him out on bail. And he, he spent his bail time locked down in his Staten Island home of his, of his mother. So they, I mean, he, cause I think he figured out when he didn't see three of the players who were at that home invasion that they, they were cooperating. So, you know, when you spend a little bit time in jail, it takes its toll on you. All of a sudden, his Miami tan disappeared. His steroid-induced muscles started to go down. He didn't look as good as he looked, and he probably felt worse. And the writing was on the wall that he was going to cooperate, and that is, in fact, what he did. And, you know, the uh, the old saying goes, the first one through the door gets the best deal. So, I mean, you know, 
if, if, if you wait for somebody else to cooperate, you're not as important now to the case because they have a cooperator. You can come in and still cooperate, but you might not get the same deal that the first guy got. And that goes for the second guy. And a lot of times it has to do with what information you can give that can implicate people higher ups in, in the uh, hierarchy of organized crime too. So I think that that has a lot to do with it. But again, you know, when you're sitting there and you're thinking, you're locked down in the house, like you said, you're losing the tan, you're not having drinks with Sofia Vergara, you're not uh, going to dinner with uh, J-Lo and, and Puff Daddy and all these different people who were, you know, they were in the limelight then. I guess it could really be a good incentive to think about cooperating. And then, you know, when you when you do become a cooperator, there's, there's several ways that you know, your life can go. You can go into the witness protection program and go live in uh, Nebraska someplace and never have a decent meal, you know, like you used to, or you can become a cooperator and you can, you know, uh, be protected or go to jail or whatever. And then when you leave, you leave the program and you do the things like Sammy and Jimmy and this Chris Pacciello are doing, you know, so there's, uh, there's, there's several avenues, you know, so, and if you go into the witness protection program, you can't, you know, you can't visit your family. You can't see them. You know, so you know, Philly the, in Nebraska, yeah. they, they don't have the Sambuco Romana and they certainly don't have the three coffee beans that go in the snifter when you pour that <laughs> Sambuco Romana. <laughs> Forget that. They ain't got a good slice of pizza. Never mind. That's, that's right. You can't. Uno, 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 who, thank you so much for the 999 Super Chat. Very much appreciated. Folks, this is police off the cuff, real crime stories. I'm retired Sergeant Bill Cannon, and I with me is retired Detective Phil Grimaldi from straight out of Brooklyn. We're a pretty good tag team here. We got a lot of knowledge of, of what we speak. I'm no way a organized crime expert, but I have a pretty good idea how to work a murder case, and uh, so does Phil Grimaldi. And these cases to me and these stories are fascinating uh, because, you know, Crime was our business for, you know, on the other side of the fence, of course, the law enforcement side. And when I hear about some of these crimes these guys committed, some of them, some of them took a lot of, uh, a lot of thought, a lot of brains. Others were just smash and grab type jobs. But it's amazing when you hear um, the diabolical personalities of some of these people. And it's, uh, it's amazing. And that's what movies are made of, you know. Absolutely, Bill. And, uh, you know, I'm looking forward to having these guests on because they're going to give us an insight of, you know, how did you grow up and aspire to be involved in organized crime? You know what I mean? And, you know, I can't wait to ask Sammy and Jimmy those type of questions to try and get an idea of, you know, what the mindset was, because I grew up in a neighborhood too. And listen, I happen to have uh, family and, and, and relatives and close friends that kind of put me on the straight and narrow. So I was, I was, you know, I feel like I was lucky in that respect, but uh, you know, again, maybe, uh, maybe there's some common denominator in there that, uh, that we can look at and make people aware of and, you know, strip it away that uh, maybe, you know, uh, kids might not, younger kids might not throw their lives away and get involved in this stuff, you know? Well, you know, when you grow, grow up in a neighborhood like that, you're looking up to guys that are, you know, wearing the fancy clothes have wads of cash coming out of their pocket, driving brand new Cadillacs. They're getting all the hot looking chicks and you're like, wow, one day I want to be a wise guy, but you're not seeing them in the Metropolitan Correction Facility eating cheese sandwiches. And, you know, uh, you're staying there for months and years and then getting sentenced to a state prison 
talk to a guy who's done state time and they'll tell you it's one of the hardest things on earth to do. It's not like there's not a movie at noon. There's not, you know, workout at uh, three o'clock. There's not a massage at four, you know, a state prison is a state prison and a federal prison is the same. And it's, it breaks down your spirit. And, you know, guys like uh, Sammy, they were in uh, solitary confinement. And that really not just breaks your spirit, it can break your mind and make you lose your mind. You know, so those are all the things that a lot of these guys go through. Is it worth it? Is it ever worth that? You know, Bill, I'm glad you brought that up because when I was a kid growing up, I could remember stories about, uh, we talked about Eddie Lino earlier, that he would actually uh, get on the Concorde, which was a four-hour trip to London, I believe. It would fly at supersonic speed, go to London, have a suit made or, you know, get fitted for a suit, fly back the same day, go back the next week and pick up the uh, the suit. And the wise guys of my time didn't walk around in uh, sweatsuits and sneakers, you know. They always were dressed. They had their hair coiffed. Uh, not a lot of jewelry, but, you know, maybe a fancy wash. They always had brand new cars. The cars were always kept clean. And um, like you said, the women, this, that. And you could see the respect that they got when they, like I worked in a, in a Sala Maria when I, when I was a kid, an Italian grocery store. And when these guys would come in, you would see how the, the respect would be there for them, you know, and, and uh, being around all of those guys and not knowing exactly what they did, but the lives that they led and what you saw, it would be easy for a young impressionable kid to be impressed by it and want to be like that, you know? So, uh, yeah, I could d- definitely understand it. I mean, it's a different game today. Well, it's you know, Phil, even, the, even the bad, the Bath Avenue crew, they were sort of on the periphery. Yes. But they were, they were doing a lot of the dirty work for the bananas crime family. Uh, yep. So they were doing a lot of, you know, what do they say? Uh, uh, when you do some work, you know, that's like a code word for killing somebody. Piece you know, of work, piece of work, a piece of work, you know, did, did do a piece of work. of work for us, you know, and some of them or a couple of them uh, thought that they, they were going to get made for doing that piece of work or several pieces of work for the family. And many of them never got made, you know, and uh, for, for some people growing up, you know, you watch the movie Goodfellas when that guy, Billy Bats was supposed to get made and he goes to get made and he gets whacked instead. And I'm sure in this book, Mob over Miami, the same exact thing happened to one of the guys yeah. he thought he was getting made. And yeah. he went to get made and he got whacked instead. So, and it's always like, uh, I know J- Jimmy Calandra, we're going to talk about this. His friends were used to whack his best friend. And yeah. that's, you know, that's a horrible, imagine that. I mean, it's your friend that's going to be the one that kills you, you know? <laughs> Phil, yeah. I wouldn't want to. Th- I wouldn't want to think that my podcast co-host is going to put one in the back oh. of my head. <laughs> but in, in that life, a lot of times, uh, when you take the oath, they say, "Will, will you uh, betray? If you betray the family, you know, would you kill? Would you? Would you? Would you leave your family? You know, they they in the oath they say all of those things that you know we're your family now. You have to live by us. You have to die by us. And uh, you know they go through that whole oath. So uh, yeah, it's pretty it's pretty nasty when uh, when they want to get you and they use your best. And, and there's been a, a lot of stories like that. I know that you mentioned uh, Paulie Galino was killed by two of his good friends, and while Jimmy was in jail, and I think that really sent Jimmy for a loop. So you know, uh, pretty pretty tough stuff. You know. Uh, Really, uh, really nasty stuff, you know, that they, that they, the, 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 the gray wolf wants to know, do they wear pinky rings? You know, a lot of cops wear pinky rings. 
I don't even know. I, Philly may have wore a pinky wing at one time. I don't know. <laughs> not, Philly, not, did you? Not did lately, you not no, no, he took it off after he retired, but he may have had one. He may have had one of those, you know, his shield on the gold ring on his pinky, you know, with a couple of diamonds. He went to show wealth, you know? <laughs> yeah. You, you know, there was, there was always a fine line between the cops that I hung out with and the gangsters. And when, you know, I, I was single in my twenties in the eighties when I came on the job and we would go out to clubs and there would be us and there would be them. And, uh, you know, they, they were into the nightlife. We were into the nightlife. Cause you know, if you did a four to 12, what'd you do? You were not drinking after work. Or if you did a six to two, you got off two in the morning, you ran to a bar or a club to try and have a drink. So, you know, a lot of times there was a fine line and there's some parallels, you know, we're a paramilitary organization paramilitary organization, the NYPD. And, you know, they, they kind of have a paramilitary uh, structure as well, you know. So uh, there's some parallels. We don't, you know, we have a retirement plan. They have, uh, you know, we wind up when you retire from the model. You, <laughs> you wind up dead. So, you know, it's a little different, but uh, there is some Well, you know, when we, Phil, when, we, when they were talking about when they went to do a hit and they would have a crash car yes. and they would have a, 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 like a backup car, it reminded me exactly like anti-crime, but in reverse, you know, like, cause we would set up like that. Yeah. We would have not a, not a crash car, but we, if, if we were following a car, going to stop a car full of robbers or something, we'd have a car to cut them off. And then we'd have, you know, two cars to surround them. So we sort of worked it in the same way. And, you know, they were doing that for criminal activity and we were doing it to uh, fight crime, you know? Yes. I, I can remember a case where we had a kidnapping and they were coming to pick up the uh, the ransom and it was a, a location in Brighton Beach. And we had people at the beginning of the block. We had people at the end of the block. I was actually in the house where the guy was going to come and take the uh, pick up the ransom. And, you know, we had emergency service standing by. Uh, they, they were actually in uniform, but they were hiding in the shadows where they couldn't be seen. And they were in an unmarked vehicle. And uh, when the car pulled up, you know, everybody converged and, uh, you know, yeah, we, we have similar tactics you know they they use a crash car in case somebody tries to stop them from you know uh committing this hit and we have you know we lock down the block to make the arrest so it's uh yeah it's similar tactics you know someone in the chat wanted to know what is a pinky ring for <laughs> it's it, it's to garner respect i guess you know i don't know uh we would laugh because you know different uh ethnic groups on the police department do and wear different things and that was definitely an Italian thing to wear a pinky ring, right? Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, we uh, I actually have one in my safe, but I don't wear it. I have the detective shield, and it goes on your second finger usually, you know. So, uh, but I don't even know if there's a meaning to that, the pinky ring. I think that's just like a cliche, you know, a lot of the mob guys wore pinky rings and stuff like that. We Listen, we called them crooked noses. Hey, there's Jimmy. There's Jimmy. That's a great hat. He almost looks Irish in this picture. Yeah, he does know. look Irish. He, he looks does, like right? An Irishman. There might That's be right. Irish blood running through those veins. There, there, there might be, you know. He definitely looks Irish in that picture. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, by the way, Phil sent me this because he wanted to show off his rack. For you guys that don't know what a rack is, that's his medals above his shield. And we use that expression on this show. It's sort of a, a joke because when my detectives used to bust my balls, I would tell them to go get their gun cloth and gun oil and they could go polish my rack. And so now we, we put it on some of our, sh our shirts and our merchandise. Uh, I, got a, I got a picture of me here, too. This is like uh, 
20 years ago, this it'll be this December will be 20 years ago. That picture was taken. I was promoted to. Uh, that was the day you were promoted, Bill. Yeah, well, not to sergeant, to detective sergeant. I had already right. been a sergeant in. Um, this was two thousand one, so I had already been a sergeant for like twelve years. Right. right. And uh, so I was getting promoted to SDS, and that's my oldest son. He's twenty nine now, and the younger one is uh, twenty six. So. Uh, God bless. Yeah, that's yeah. It's amazing, and you know, doing these. Um, 9-11 memorial shows uh this 9-11 of course we know we've done a few shows it's the 20-year anniversary and we we want to not commemorate it to that we want to remember it fondly but we want to memorialize it so that no one ever forgets it and to remember the sacrifices that many families gave and people are still giving to this day members of the service cops steel workers firemen EMS, court officers, all kinds of first responders suffering uh, horrendous illnesses from uh, from 9-11. And so um, it's something that we, that's why we're doing two more shows before the actual date of 9-11. And just realize that all you folks that are listening, this year is the 20-year anniversary. Hard to believe. Uh, To me, it seems like it was a long time ago. I know when people, sometimes people say, oh, felt like it was just not to me, it doesn't. You know, I feel a hell of a lot older. <laughs> it was 20 years ago. And, you know, so it seems like I'm it was glad a you brought time. that up, Bill, because that's why I got the haircut last week. A good friend of mine, uh, I have several people in my family that have cancer right now, but a good friend of mine, Joe Ponzi, was uh, uh, diagnosed with a, uh, a lung cancer that's related to 9 11. And thank God he's doing well and he's probably going to be okay. But you know, he's got to go through his, uh, his treatments and stuff. And, uh, you know, uh, you can't say enough about people that went down there. I mean, uh, people ran away from the the towers. We ran towards the towers, and uh, we spent a lot of days down there. And uh, you know, just thank God that uh, stay on top of your health screenings, and uh, you know, uh, don't uh, don't hesitate to uh, get to a doctor, but get registered if you're not. And uh, you know, you, you can. I I turned my health around. I was pretty sick in uh, 2007. It took me about six years to uh, get my breathing back on track and stuff. But uh, I still have some issues. But thank God, I'm doing better. So uh, stay with it. And as far as the picture of me with the in the uniform <laughs> with the rack, we're talking about the T-shirts that say "Polish my rack" and we're worried that's about right. women how they're going to take it and this and that. But now you know that's what we call. In the NYPD, a rack. A rack. And you get medals, you put them above, above your badge. And when you're going to be in uniform, that picture was taken. I was a detective. I wasn't in uniform, but I had a detail that day. I didn't work in uniform every day, but I had a detail. And I actually stopped in. My wife was in a restaurant close by at some kind of a, a shower, and I took that picture. That's her hand right there. I, I didn't cut her out purposely. It's just that I wanted to show <laughs> the rack. That's why I enlarged it a little bit. But uh Anyways, that, that's the rack that, you know, it's, hey, go shine my that rack. We're, that, that we're talking about. Yeah, polish my rack. Yeah. Polish my rack. That's it. Yeah, that's you, it. You, had a nice, you had a nice hairdo back then, too. Look at that. You, oh, the, the, boy. The, that Tony Monero hairdo, you know. <laughs> Makes me miss the hair that I don't have because of this haircut recently, but I'm sure it'll that's, go back. I'll be okay. That's for sure. You yeah. know, so, guys, we've, we've reached like an hour and 10 minutes. We're probably going to uh, start wrapping it up. Just, uh, I'm glad Jimmy Calandra stopped by. Uh, we left purposely left a lot of stuff out that we want to talk about with with him on the 26th. We didn't go deep, deep, deep into this, into the Bath Avenue crew or into Chris Pacciello. 
or a lot of the things that happen. And we're hoping that um, Jimmy Calandra can do that. He's a, he's a, also an, another great, great storyteller. He uh, he tells a great story and he keeps you riveted to your seat. And we're we're really excited to have him on the show. And on um, obviously on the fifteenth, we're gonna have Sammy the Bull. And I don't know if we're gonna be known now as the the Cop Wise Guy podcast, but that we're trying to just be eclectic and have guests from all over the spectrum, from law enforcement. I just actually, uh, I'm not going to tell a name, but a judge that's on TV is going to come on the show in September. And I'm really excited to have her on too. That and, should be uh, a good one. That should be a good yeah. one. She's, and she's I'm a gonna, colorful yeah. character. She is a colorful character. And I'm going to let you guys know on the next, uh, the next real crime show um, who she is. And uh, it'll be pretty exciting. Uh, Phil, any last words? Just uh, you, you've said a lot about the guests coming up. Um, I mean, look, if, if these guys weren't popular, they wouldn't have as many views as they have or subscribers. They both, uh, you're right. They tell stories pretty good. I, I love, you know, when I, when I put on one of their podcasts, I got to watch it to the end. And uh, so it's going to be interesting. Um, I got an alert on my phone during the show twice, actually about flash flooding. I just hope everybody stays safe out there tonight. Um Let's stay, you know, uh, connected with the Summer Welds case. Hopefully uh, something might break on that soon. If it does, we'll be jumping right on it. And uh, that's about it. Uh, looking forward to these upcoming shows, the 9-11 show with John Sarantino. I'm sure everybody, it's going to be an emotional show. It's, it's, it's tough to talk about this stuff for all of us. And uh, John lost eight guys in his firehouse. So uh, that should be interesting to hear. I think he's going to supply us with some photographs and different things. Uh, so we got a couple of weeks of uh, good shows coming up with 9-11, Sammy the Bull, Jimmy Calandra. We got uh, that surprise guest coming on too after that. So uh, we got some good stuff coming up. Stay tuned, guys. You know, uh, it, it, this is so exciting. I thought when Phil said he got a warning on his phone, I thought the Bershut was delivered. But that's... <laughs> <laughs> it's not it's not Brazil. Brazil. and he gets that special parmesan cheese that they they need armed guards to deliver because it's like 75 dollars a pound it's floating down <laughs> my street right now actually. <laughs> anyway for i'm bill cannon for police off the cuff real crime stories on behalf of myself and phil grimaldi good night and be safe and hope we'll hope to see you soon be safe everybody